Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, Culture and the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. I am Tim Williams and I'm your host for the Grimshaw Podcast Series. Many of you joined us uh, in the middle of last year, to the end of last year, to think about, talk about, listen to great people talk about the future of cities uh, after covid and we thought we'd uh, dig a little deeper into one subject that kept on coming uh, up, which is around culture, uh, the future of cultural activities, very strongly associated with cities. Cities have been where a lot of the resources have been put together to provide things like great uh, museums, galleries, uh, theatres. But they're also where people from uh, various parts of a country or all over the world come to share and mix their cultures and often create a new culture that's a city culture. So culture... Cities, these are the uh, great themes of the next five to six uh, episodes of the podcast series. To kick us off, I think it's fantastic that we've got a discussion going uh, with two people who are very instrumental in creating a project in Istanbul, that most beautiful city that is also a bridge in itself between East and West and between the various cultures of Turkey and indeed internationally. And the project itself is a kind of bridging project uh, within Istanbul. It's called Arter. Uh, which is a contemporary art museum in in a in a suburb in in a Istanbul that it's not always been associated with high glamour uh, and is if you like on the edge of grooviness but uh, like all great galleries like this is leading to the open transformation of this really interesting part. We've got a really interesting discussion for you between uh, Meli Ferrelli, who is the founding director of Arter, which was uh, whose patron is the the uh, the Koch family foundation, which is still associated with the the projects. We're going to hear a lot about that, and then Kirsten Lees, who is the managing partner for Grimshaw in London, who's been the lead architect on this really extraordinary and rather beautiful uh, building that we're going to uh, put some photographs up on the website for you to see associated with this podcast. Um, we start the conversation actually with. Uh, um, Melly talking about the fact like all great projects, uh, we mustn't over-rationalise that they are exactly as they were meant to be. And in fact, Arter is plan B. So let's listen to that. My idea was that what Istanbul needed and what the world needed, because I don't think there is anything like Arter in the world. Uh, it's more like an art centre, which has got, um, the, the, the idea of the project was that we would build up a collection because Turkey needed a collection, a contemporary art collection. There were private collectors who sometimes sort of displayed in their homes or in uh, small exhibition areas, even in large exhibition areas, their collection once in a while, but there wasn't an institutional collection as such, uh, which would give priority to the contemporary artistic production of Turkish artists as well. There was nothing to see the Turkish contemporary production since the 60s, and I was a firm believer, I still am, that the discourse, the artistic discourse of that generation was of a quality that could be very easily compared with that in the West, in America, even in, even in the East. So uh, many of the Turkish artists in those in the 60s actually had to leave the country. They had to go to Germany, to the United States, to the UK, to France, to be able to promote their artistry. And I thought the onus was on us to make sure that we could revive that memory of the Turkish artistic production. So that was one of the ambitions I had. But I said to Amar Koch, 
really what we need to do is um, Turkey needs a strong element to latch onto to use uh, artistic expression as a strong platform for freedom of expression, for analytical, analytical thinking. We need to make sure that that institution encourages contemporary artistic production, and not just in visual arts, but across all disciplines of art, which obviously would have to be in dialogue with the collection and with the philosophy of display and with the philosophy of artistic activity within that institution. And I said, we also want to make sure that we don't create uh, an edifice that looks down on because that, that is the worst thing that one could do in, in any country, but in a country like Turkey, even more so. Um, so we, we sh should define our role as that of bringing together artists and audiences um, and to celebrate today's art across all disciplines. Can I ask you a and, question? Can I ask you a question about this? Because one of the ways in which you uh, your, your great phrase that you didn't want art to look down on on the community, you've, you've chosen a really brilliant kind of location to make sure that that's very deep in the project. And it's actually, and it's very close to my heart, uh, you know, my, my sort of work that I've been interested in for a long time about the urban regeneration of, of cities and about an inclusive approach to, you know, uh, I, I hate the phrase there, kind of uh, disadvantage, you know, kind of working class people have thought that you know, I grew up with, frankly, and I love the idea that you've you've built this museum and gallery in Dolapdere, which is a, a kind of That's right. not not a necessarily glamorous part no. of, uh, of very close to, to glamorous, very possibly. close to the center, but mm -hmm. but uh, you know, a classic kind of uh, inner city kind of place that's got a lot of mixed communities and people wouldn't normally go to a gal a gallery. And you you've built this thing when you started building it in a former exactly auto repair uh, exactly. Sort of building so i think you know th th there couldn't be a bigger statement of your desire to connect to a different kind of community so where did that come from that 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 ambition that desire that choice i'm very happy to hear your interpretation of our location that actually came by sheer luck because the original the yes the original <laughs> you see yeah. There's my theory blown up, you see. The, uh, no, I, no, I, it's not blown up because I, I believe in constellations. Uh, sometimes these things come together and you see yeah. this constellation. And in a, when you first look at it, it appears to be totally by chance, almost Cajun, uh, I Chingian. But that you look back and then you see that it, it was really meant to be. And as I was getting on, I said to my coach, uh, my dear friend, I'm getting on. If we're going to see at least the contemporary element of the project, let's make sure that we go for plan B. And the plan B was to demolish this building that belonged to the family that existed in this location before we demolished it. And then we would uh, have uh, an invited competition. Uh, not an open call, uh, and then we would decide to whom we would give uh, the award, uh, to award the contract to build a new building. That's how we came to this location. It just happened to be a property owned by the family.
Well, it's, it's funny because how, before I come to Kirsten, because I'm going to ask Kirsten about how the architect, how you, how Grimshaw, you know, faced up to these aspirations and some of the architectural moves. But we will talk, we'll talk about it. Before we get there, I wanted to say, sum up a, a part of the discussion. Because my background has been, Melly, in kind of uh, often culture-led urban regeneration, you know. Um, you know, I, I've worked in places like in East London uh, and in Shoreditch was transformed by the kind of creative industries going to this, you know, slightly unglamorous part of London that had lost its economic purpose. Uh, Whitechapel Gallery famously, you know, and they all, whether or not they were intended, whether or not you intended this result, you, you're having a major impact, it seems to me, from what I do. understand, do. on, on the kind of transformation of the area and also the opportunities for cultural access and engagement by local communities in something they wouldn't otherwise visit. So, you know, I, I, I do think we'll, I want to talk a bit about that. So once we, once, excuse me, once we decided to come to this location, of course, we did carry out many studies of the community, how we would be looked upon by the community, what we had to be careful of, what sort of things could go wrong in terms of gentrifying the area. Because as soon as you hear that Koch is going to be investing in Dolopter, and because we're so close to the glamorous parts of the city, uh, this part of the, of the town had, had been, for reasons I don't know, had been badly neglected, although it's really three minutes from Gezi Park, literally. So we knew that gentrification was going to be inevitable. And unfortunately, many property developers, I call them property vultures, who actually descended on this area and built horrible things before we, we, we even demolished the building. Yeah, the I mean, it, we, we can talk about gentrification. It's, I feel as though it's almost unavoidable and, and the, the thing to do is to try and leverage it for local benefit, you know, the, the changes that come. But we'll, we'll come back to that. Kirsten, brilliant project, brilliant, you know, uh, innovation, great kind of patron sponsor. Um, you know, what's your history of engagement with it? And tell us a bit about the evolution and, and the building that we see now. Yeah, well, I mean, you've just heard Millie there. I'm going to make you blush, Millie, in terms of, you know, I've often talked about how, what, you know, great buildings, you need really great clients. And you just that listen to that brief. It's just so inspiring and exciting. And, you know, who's not going to want to really be involved? So when we heard about the project, obviously, we were delighted to be invited, but it was a competitive um, dialogue. But I think um, one thing that the Koch Foundation got right, right from the very beginning was during the design process, during that competitive dialogue, they engaged. So often design processes start from almost you're, you're in isolation, you're having to interpret the brief, you're not got this ability to actually challenge, question, understand, probe. And we had a couple of very long engagement sessions after the, the evolution of the and the development of the competitive process, which were really invaluable were us really getting under the skin of what what um, Koch Foundation were aiming to do. Uh, we went to the site. Um, I always remember going down to the site with a film partner. He kept saying to me, have you, have you really got the directions right? I don't believe you. <laughs> and we're all dressed up in our togs. And, you know, it's a very steep and hilly part of um, the of uh, Istanbul, which, if you know the city, fabulous, as you say, um, Tim. But, you know, and it's got this amazing topography. 
Um, and I think in seeing this, I, I think, you know, to all of what you, you're saying, I think it's really, really important that in creating a new building in this location, it has great opportunities uh, by Britain drawing new footfall um, to this area, very proximate to Getsy Park. Um, but you have to do that in a really inclusive way and by really proactively um, engaging with the existing community and proactively drawing them in. And I think that is both in terms of engagement and communication, but I think one of the big drivers for the building itself was about actually the physical manifestation can do a huge amount to making buildings open, welcoming, you know, and breaking down perceived barriers. And I suppose as well, you know, we actually arrived at the site when the historic building, the, you know, the car factory was already, it was still in place. And the, you know, in many ways, there's this really rich, you know, um, community behind, but it, it felt like it was behind Dollop Derry itself. The main street was, you know, really was very car dominated, there was central reservoir. There was this horrendous bridge, which luckily just disappeared one time when we revisited because we were scratching our heads about how to really make that sort of leap because whilst um, the area close and the routes down from Iskabel, um are, it doesn't take long in terms of time. It does feel like the other side. And without yeah. many ways, it was this was like sort of almost throwing a pebble or throwing a stone into the river into the other side and seeing how the sort of ripples then sort of, uh, sort of Often, often these there. places, yeah. often these places, by the way, they, they, they appear physically close to the center of things, but kind of almost psychologically, and culturally, they yeah. seem quite a long, long way away. And I, yeah. I, these projects bring bring them closer. They they kind of reintegrate them. I think it seems to me. Anyway, sorry, you go Absolutely. ahead. Absolutely. So I think one of the first things we did was like you know, many ways is we have to connect beyond, and therefore it, <laughs> we just took a great big hole right through the center of the building and smashed all the way through in conceptually. And the reasons yeah. for doing that was really to connect Dollop Derry to the um to the main frontage and to do that connection right through the heart of the building. So those public areas of the building which are open, accessible, free to all, they're designed to really promote dwell, they're designed to promote people to feel comfortable to access. Um, you don't need to visit the galleries obviously many do everyone else because they're they're fascinating and the artworks are wonderful but the premise behind this idea about actually breaking down barriers was as a real um driver i think also um, the uh, sorry just for people to get it in their minds eye um the the, the you're talking about a, a a building we'll talk about it how it functions but you're also talking about a building that overcame or sought to overcome some of the barrier effects of the of the pre-existing one so you end up with a an institution that serves a kind of cultural purpose but it actually has become a a public amenity and uh and has become a has created public space uh around it and and a kind of way of accessing it in a sense which actually reconnects it to the surrounding fabric and i think that's quite an important thing you know sorry to interrupt you 
Not at all. And there was, you're absolutely right. And it was a real driver. Um, there was, we felt that the main street it needed public realm. I mean, at, at the time, there was no sort of pedestrian walkway, there was no <laughs> pavement. Right. Yeah. Created a plaza to the front, and we felt that was much more urban and civic. But then um, to the rear, we wanted to create a sort of urban garden, let's say. Um, if for those who've been to Istanbul, it's fabulous, it's vibrant, it's lively, it's loud, it's messy, it's real. But there aren't a huge number of spaces to sit, to relax, to take shade. And we felt that was really, really important. But, and, but there was also this huge topography, so that you know, sort of central space also needed to navigate a level difference. So in opening up this sort of almost three story sort of uh, volume through right, an atrium right through the heart, yeah. we also needed to draw people in to the, to the gardens to the rear. But the great part of the brief as well was this idea that um, about offering more. So um, People are drawn in. There's a cafe which overlooks the garden to the rear. There's also a bookshop. But the ethos of developing the bookshop and the ideas behind that was making it again feel like almost like a library that you're encouraged to browse to to um, discover. There's also um, a, li a, a small library within that level at that free, also available um, and to all um, and within that space there's a huge fantastic and really rich program of discussions presentations learning program and actually yeah. what we were trying to do in this sort of central space was just make people feel that it was almost like their living room and they could free to flow and remain and be engaged with, with the building so you you go yeah. and come back to you we have the obviously the very close controlled galleries um, above um, their access off the off the first floor, and then obviously the brief was so ambitious <laughs> and didn't quite fit the site, so we did need to go quite a long way down a massive seven stories excavation, and within that area we've also located you know two performance halls. Um, the temporary gallery, uh, sort of community-led sort of exhibition, and uh, also um, workshop area, and then there's obviously all of the storage and conservation areas as well within that. So really I think you should hide this light under a bushel. It's seven stories down, isn't it? In the it's a in the it's the big dig, and it's uh, that's an amazing <laughs> thing to do. I think the the other thing about it is, and I, I you know, adjectives and even uh, Melia, a, a Welshman, will not be able to describe this building as eloquently as it looks. But I have to say that it seems to me to evoke a kind of modernity, but also a kind of cultural continuity. It respects a kind of uh, Islamic design to some degree, or, to, or you know, it's, it fits in with its historic uh, surroundings, actually, despite being a very modern building. The ceramic stuff, the facade is really fascinating, I think. And so I think it's very successful and really good. But you opened it at a time of COVID. I think you were no, just no, about no, no. Just no, before. We, we, we opened it before. We opened yeah, no, but, but before, but but you we, know, we were open. We were open. Hit, well, you hit COVID. So I've got to ask you, how did COVID it go? Yes. <laughs> how did it go through COVID? And then we, what, what do we think we need? I think one of the conversations uh, for both of you 
is around uh, the functioning of, of cultural institutions kind of during the COVID experience, but also coming out of it. You know, we've just heard from Kirsten around, it's got a very big uh, engagement with the local community in uh, physically enabling that, but also it's programming, I guess, and the way you've got a neighborhood card, which enables people to access it and it's free on Thursday. So, you know, it's got a, it's got a strong learning uh, sort of focus. It's also, I think, got a very strong emphasis, which I think is right in this post-COVID discussion around young people and, you know, uh, getting them in and, and, you know, sort of uh, in, involving them. But, you know, it can't have been easy, I put it to you, Melly, to run uh, a cultural institution during COVID. Well, tell me a bit about that challenge, because quite a lot of people listening to this will be involved in, in cultural institutions that went through the same experiences internationally. And, you know, how did you manage and how are you managing now getting out of it, as it were? Well, I suppose the short answer would be with great difficulty, blood, sweat and tears, basically, to keep an organisation going during lockdown, a series of lockdowns. And where we weren't the only country that was suffering from the repercussions of COVID, of course, it was worldwide. So all our partners were suffering. So it was a deep trauma. We opened on the 9th of September 2019. A very sexy day, 9-9-19. And by December, we had news from China that in a city that we'd never heard of, Wuhan, which is 11 million or whatever, uh, there was this virus. And we thought, well, it's not coming this way. But early March, it arrived in Turkey, if not before. And we were the first cultural institution that decided to actually close down its doors. On the 13th of March, we closed, and it wasn't until uh, June of 2020. So we were closed for three months, totally closed. Nothing was happening. It was a lockdown, true lockdown. So we uh, basically mothballed all our galleries, all our uh, exhibitions and so on, cancelled all our physical events. Uh, we didn't even do anything digital in the beginning. Uh, because we weren't quite sure. We thought, well, this is probably going to go away in two or three weeks. But it didn't. It became very serious. When it dawned on us that it was here to stay, then we started very careful planning. First of all, we looked at our legal obligations and whether there was a, there was a clause that would save us from having to pay fees, contractual fees to artists, to performers, uh, and whether this was going to be considered to be a force majeure. So when the World Health Organization declared a pandemic, then that saved uh, us from having to pay fees, which would have really amounted to a lot of money, because we weren't, we're not just doing exhibitions, but as Kelsen explained, we have a very rich performative program. So we do music, we do theater, we do dance, uh, we do literature, we do book, inst uh, book launches, we do panels. We have a very, very active learning program. And this neighborhood scheme, for instance, enables us to uh, have a real dialogue, face-to-face -face dialogue, um, at least once a month. Uh, in fact, it was before the pandemic, it was every Thursday, the first Thursday of the month, uh, we gave them, we gave our neighborhood a lunch, a free lunch. We invited them and we didn't have to speak about art because initially I think the art that we were presenting seemed rather inaccessible to them. Yeah. But they soon understood that 
one of the mainstays, main objectives of Arte was to make art accessible in all its forms to everybody and at affordable prices. So every Thursday is free to the public. The community can enter the building free of charge and see all our galleries anytime they like, free of charge. Anyone who is 24 and under can actually come into the building and see anything and everything totally free of charge any day they like, which is quite unusual, not just for Turkey, but for the world. There are not that many institutions who think of the youth as being the, you know, the future stakeholders. And, and therefore we, we paid a lot of attention to that and we owe this to um, a refinery, to the largest uh, company within the group called Tiprush. It's a refining company and they've been extremely generous. So any shortage of funds because of the fact that we allow people to come into the building free of charge has been compensated for by Tiprush, which I, I, I cannot thank them enough really for this. Um, then of course, we had to think of how do we make ourselves tick? And how do we, because we're a young institution, we didn't want people to forget us very quickly soon after our opening. So we had to think of using the digital platforms for that purpose. But Kassin knows how difficult a person I am when it comes to reaching public platforms. Because uh, what happened was exactly what I feared would happen. Everyone, every institution suffered from digital diarrhea they basically put anything and everything they had that was created digitally like a video photography or tour exhibitions and so on and they just bombarded their public with this so much so that people people said well i'm not interested in all this you know why right. why is this being sort of fed into me so we decided to develop projects for those platforms especially very much considering the circumstances of COVID and the pandemic and the lockdown, because the issues that artists and the public had to deal with were more than just watching a digital video. So we addressed social issues, we addressed the interaction between social issues and artistic production and how that affected everybody. So it was a very, very difficult thing to do, but we managed it. We, we embraced kids, children, um, not only in Istanbul, but also throughout Turkey. Uh, that, that was one of the major, um, I think, enrichments in our lives, uh, because we, we never were able to reach an audience that wasn't an audience. So it taught us how to make clever use of the technology in terms of reaching an audience that really became so addicted to us that they, they still keep writing to us, they wow. attend our digital, because we carry on with these di digital activities. But slowly, slowly we are planning, uh, I think we will plan physical activities from September this year, because tax numbers are still high, the pandemic is still a risk, um, we're running about 80,000 incidents a day. Uh, the death numbers are a bit worrying still because more than 200 a day. Uh, so uh, we're extremely careful as to who comes into the building. So we're looking for PCR uh, certificates, okay. uh, booster jabs, etc., etc. 
but to cut, to cut a long story short, the artistic production suffered badly because one of the one of the objectives we have is to encourage new artistic production. But economically, the country uh, had to face up to a downturn, and we still now we've got war upon us, uh, thanks to another madman. Um, so what do we do? We have to, uh, rather than uh, commissioning new works, uh, commissioning new productions, new exhibitions, we had to decide to make maximum use of our collection. So if we have seven exhibitions in the building, that's the maximum of exhibitions you can have, including our carbon, the performance uh, space. Um, usually about four or five of them would be new works but that hasn't been the case during the pandemic because we decided that uh, we couldn't really pay very expensive transport costs and insurance costs because you know because of uh, the lockdown in china the whole world had enormous difficulties in their supply chain and that affected us too so you couldn't bring works in uh, transport costs were extremely high. So we made use of our collection. We curated thematic exhibitions for each of our galleries from the collection. And at the moment, we still have, with the exception of two exhibitions, uh, the rest of the exhibitions will still be continuing to be based on our collection. You are listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, Culture and the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. So this is very interesting because, and again, of relevance to people who are in the cultural and creative industries, but how they responded and your response about, uh, well, we couldn't do a lot of new stuff uh, really, but we had a lot of existing materials we could exploit in a different kind of way. And there was a, a kind of make do and mend, uh, you know, innovation forced on us. Uh, and actually some of it will, will last. I think you, you were saying you kind of learned a few lessons about the combination of real and hybrid online kind of stuff. Exactly. That, probably going to get, that was a real enrichment, yes. Yeah, and you're going to get much more, uh, you'd be much more adept, I think, at dealing with young people and all this kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, I'm assuming that we can be confident about September. Um, I'm sure that your staff would be really looking forward to the kinds of innovation that they can come up with, you know, to bring people back in, which is what I want to talk about next, because I think that the... One of the things that I've been pushing in the discussion we've had about cities on this Grimshaw podcast series is the idea that there's going to be a reimagining and a reinvention of the city centres going on. They might be, there's a shift, I guess, to um, slightly less economic activity, but perhaps more cultural activity. Fill the streets with life is the phrase that, uh, you know, the the restoration of a kind of sociability, uh, a, a healthy and safe sociability. How are we going to do that? And I think what I've been picking up is that culture and the arts will be quite an important part Indeed. of getting people, getting people back into uh, the cities. What do you think about that, Kirsten, as a kind of uh, discussion point? I think that's great and so vital. I mean, I think we can't all have gone through, you know, all of the last of the challenges of the last two years. Um, as Mello was explaining, you have to make do and get on, but actually be creative uh, within that. And you know, actually using the existing collection to really focus on the thematic themes, but channel, ch- taking those themes on board, you know, looking at the social impact, looking at the impact it has on production of our of artwork, um, looking at those different connections. Uh, you know, it's always been a key 
theme, I think, um, within Arda is it's always been about creating, you know, connections. It's been a, it's a multidisciplinary building, you know, designed really to push boundaries um, across different disciplines. Yeah. Um, Can we talk, talk a bit about yeah. that because, um, you know, uh, one of the things that people you've people have heard you say, but let's talk a bit about what what it means to be a multidisciplinary space because it's unusual for you know um, a gallery, a museum to be also kind of like an art center with performance space and all that. So, uh, Kirsten, say a bit about how you resolved all that 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 variations of uses and stuff, and then. I'll ask Melly to say a bit about the theory behind it, why you wanted to do it. So, Kirsten, uh, what sort of challenges have you been able to resolve in this multidisciplinary space? <laughs> so, I mean, I think taking first the galleries, so often galleries, you know, they, they are different rooms, you know, whether they're connected on Falad or, um, but there's a sort of distinction between each. Um, what we try to do at Arter was really create, you know, a series of interconnected spaces that really promote sort of this idea of sort of interplay and fluidity and therefore that the almost the visitor journey becomes a sort of undogmatic flow through almost a continuous volume but those volumes contract expand connect and it feels completely continuous in how you actually move through the building. Um, and that's always really challenging as well. Um, if you've seen the building is on multiple levels, how in so often because gallery floors are, you know, double story, sometimes triple story, actually you can get a disconnect between each of the different levels as you move up what often is a sort of formal or sort of promenading staircase. So actually we don't have a single staircase. Uh, we have a journey which actually moves around the building and it just, you flow through the, 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 the space. We've always got tantalizing glimpses of what's coming next. It's been interconnected visually as well. And then what's gone before and, you know, relating to again, the brief about actually care for the visitor. Um, there's also what we're introduced as what's called as sort of dialogue spaces. And these are spaces within the gallery journey that provide respite to the visitor, um, but provide additional learning spaces overlooking the main galleries. And each one of those, we also thought it was an opportunity because obviously galleries, you need to protect the artwork. Um, and that sense of connection to the outside and orientation. So we use these dialogue spaces also to create a picture window to connect back to the city, to provide visual relief respite, while simultaneously having the view to the gallery that you've been in and come from, and um, also as a, a view to the ones that you're going. It's very difficult well, I mean, to describe without pointing to Oh, no, to I mean, it. we're gonna put... <laughs> done very well and we'll put photographs up on the site but i was going to say was that i'm looking forward to standing outside this building going inside this building and going to the top of this building because it's got a great view out on the city and by the way wallpaper i discover you should put this uh on your uh, your um on your website here uh uh kirsten wallpaper described it as a portal into a parallel universe uh which, you know, <laughs> that's lovely it's not, a bad, it's not a bad thing to have said about 
just a bloody building for god's sake you know it's a portal <laughs> to a parallel universe right so i'm i'm hoping the client Melly was delighted with his portal into a parallel universe. I was, I was, over the moon, yes. <laughs> you know, but it reminds me that one's language can, you know, describe reality as well as enhance it, is the only thing to say. But I do think it's a great thing to be. And I want to ask you this question about how you think that the, um, you know, we've heard about some of the architectural moves that reflect the ambition for it to be um a kind of multidisciplinary space but why did you want it to be a multidisciplinary space what's the thinking there Melly? well the thinking uh at the risk of sounding rather personal um i need to sort of explain to you um why i was brought in and why i had this idea of of this sort of a institution being created in Istanbul. I'm not a museologist. Uh, I didn't read art history. Uh, I'm a mathematician and I'm a musician. I'm a singer. Um, I, my contact to other disciplines of art have always been through maths and music. Um, I've grown up in a discipline, in an environment, where I've been taught that you can't really separate mathematics from life and you can't separate art from life. And that's a tripod that I think basically dictated what I felt we needed to achieve in the creation of this building. Um, and because I connected to other disciplines of art through this abstraction of maths and music, which I find um, all encompassing, um, I wasn't, personally afraid of saying to Kassin and Sir Nick uh, that this building needed to be hosting all disciplines of creativity and all disciplines that were associated with contemporary nature, uh, translucent, people-focused, making it accessible to everybody. Uh, this translucency, fluidity, uh, this idea of uh, making people feel very much at home uh, was very prominent in thinking. And also I've discovered in my lifetime uh, that there are people who don't realize uh, that they might be interested in other disciplines of art. They think they're only interested in music, but they're not given the opportunity of being able to go into a gallery where they can not only meet what they're looking for uh, in terms of a concert maybe uh, but then they can be sidetracked and taken into a gallery where they would see an exhibition and they'd be floored by it and all of a sudden you sort of cross fertilize from one discipline into another and I think this is something that need that we all need very badly institutions which have been established long before our time I've observed, I've visited many of many of the directors are my friends, of course. And I've observed that as they developed into a bigger institution, uh, they saw that, first of all, people didn't like the idea of having a permanent collection gallery. Everything had to be treated almost like a temporary, temporary gallery. So I decided from the very beginning that we're not, although we called it temporary gallery to begin with, because that's our ground floor gallery. Um, 
we decided that we would not have a, temp, uh, a permanent gallery because people get sick of going to that gallery. It doesn't change. It stays there for two and a half years and nobody really cares after a while. Nobody goes there. Secondly, we wanted to make sure uh, that you could um, change exhibitions rather more frequently. You know, longer exhibitions have become a reality of our lives because of the pandemic. Normally, the frequency of change uh, for our exhibitions is every four to five months, a major exhibition changes. And we still dovetailed our exhibitions in such a way that when you come, if you don't come to Arta for three months, you will have missed at least two exhibitions. Wow. That's yeah. how we operated. Thirdly, um, because I'm not a museologist and because I'm a festival organizer, um, I was not afraid of making mistakes. So when I discussed this with Omar Koch and I explained to him this idea that I have of making this into an art center with a focus on visual arts, having a collection, but not confining himself just to visual arts, making it function as an art center that makes sure that whatever events we schedule would be in dialogue with the current exhibition or the collection. But that didn't mean that we wouldn't be able to play Mozart or Haydn in our chamber music hall. That we would do as well. In fact, most of our concerts that we focus on younger musicians to participate, discover new talent, um, giving them further visibility, playing in a wonderful hall, etc., are based on a combination of really classical music uh, with maybe a little bit of a contemporary piece being in, included in the program. So, I think that I, also uh, offered wait, curatorially, you know, we're fixed about where different types of activity or exhibition or performance should happen. And I think that's really exciting. So, you know, so some of the performance spaces become exhibition spaces and some of the exhibition spaces become like Carmen. I will send Tim, yeah, I will send Tim, I will send all of you, in fact, the link to our new music festival, which is taking place uh, digitally uh, from this Friday until Sunday. Uh, that shows exactly what we're doing. Uh, because you, you know many institutions which are much older than us have discovered that to increase frequency of visits by, by a single individual, uh, they need to do events. But if they don't do proper events, they, can go, they would go to Lincoln Center or Carnegie Hall instead of going to Mobile. So they discovered that they needed to have the spaces. But unfortunately, uh, they were wearing a straitjacket. They didn't have the spaces. And to build new spaces to cater for these projects would be very expensive, as indeed we've discovered they are. So Kirsten and I and Sonic have agreed that we would build into this building those structures which we would serve that purpose. So this building is going to keep on changing. It's uh, it's it's boundary breaking within itself. It is boundary breaking. It's it's boundary breaking between disciplines, which is Indeed. great. It's boundary breaking between cultures because of of where it is in this amazing country that's evolving. You know, uh, to become a really important country in the world 
partly because of its scale and partly because of its cultural position. You're a bridge between all these things. I, 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 I did a couple of things I wanted to say about you, Melly, from just talking to you now and looking at the building and thinking about what you're saying, you know, is that, boy, you know, one thing we need to get, Kirsten, is more clients like Melly. This is, up, this is I'm sure people <laughs> listening to this who are in this world will say, we've got to get that guy to be our client. You know, the, the second thing I wanted to say was, but the Melly, client was the client was the foundation. I was I was just, I mean, a, little, I mean, I was just I mean, a little player. <laughs> no, no, no. I understand completely. I uh, I think that combination of the you know the, the the patron who's got a broad idea helped by the advisor is a very good model. What I was going to say was the you should be very. I'm sure you're very aware that you are very much in the Renaissance tradition of you know the breaking the that you need to think about the the classical arts which involve depicting things that they involve poetry and they involve music they probably involve athleticism we haven't talked about that yet but you know essentially that you are indeed representing an ideal i also think that you're um, looked at in a in a historical sense and and variations of forms of islamic culture over the time there were periods in islamic history where a lot of these things were actually preserved from the past yeah. uh, for the for the future so i'm i think you're serving quite an important function i want to ask in kind of conclusion two questions i want to ask one is I'm going to ask both of you this this question, Kirsten. It's, it's about what have you learned from this project that you've you, you know, even though we've got this idiosyncratic and wonderful client and advisor, what have you learned that you think you can apply, or you think is worth thinking through for other projects of of you know cultural projects in their environment and and the impacts that you wish to achieve? What do you think you've learned about it? And and, and I guess also the fact that we coming out of the COVID discussion, how do you think that the the world of culture and culture and cities will change or, or, or is changing. Melia, I just want to ask you, um, one of the phrases that came out of the research, uh, there's two ideas. One is the democratic space for all that I read in some, some of the works, which I quite like, but also that it, although it was a kind of accident, you ended up in that building. It, it, it is a very uh, iconic district that you're in because of recent, the recent sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's near uh, Gezi, Gezi Park, Gezi it's Park. near at uh, the um taxim square yeah. which is kind of famous uh you know it's a, it's a there are there are various turkeys that come together uh and uh you know engage in this kind of space so you you're a bit of an intervention in in you know the future of turkey as well as uh, of of significance in the arts and cultural world how do you see that and then i'm going to come to kirsten about what she might have learned from this project who do you want to go first <laughs> yes Melly, go first and then Kirsten. Shall I go first? Ladies normally go first, but you know, I'll go first. Okay. Well, Be because of my father's business, uh, he was a spare parts um, dealer. He was selling spare parts for diesel tractors, agricultural tractors, and trucks, basically, only up the hill from here. Uh, so I knew uh, this district uh, because of his commercial connections. And in those days, and I'm talking about the early 60s. Uh, mid 60s um, this community was filled with uh, greek orthodox um, oh. and armenian orthodox and some jewish people there were not that many muslims living in this district and most of my father's friends were therefore from um, different religious denominations not that religion mattered to them i mean they they were all Istanbul basically they were proud of their location and so on. 
And I remember having gone to a number of services just up the street in that church called Panaya Evangelistra. Uh, and I can't help but tell you this anecdote as well. The older building that we used as a laboratory on Isiklas Street before we built this big building, we discovered was built by a Greek Istanbul architect called Meimerides. And then the coin dropped when we came here. I remembered that the architect who built our neighbor church is also the same guy, Meimerides. So his spirit called us down to this district as well. So that constellation, I think, is now complete that I mentioned. So anyway. No there are no accidents, really. No, there are no accidents. So I, I knew uh, that until 1974, or until the invasion of Cyprus, um, the, the livelihood of the community in terms of the various races, religions, uh, languages, etc., was incomparable to any part of the city. It was absolutely beautiful. But many people left Istanbul. Uh, so much so that Dolap Dere became more like, um, like a stop point in a journey. In other words, people who were rather deprived, who wanted to come to Istanbul to find a job, came to Dolap Dere because that was central but a rather affordable district. And as soon as they found their feet on the ground, let's say within two, three years, then they would go to a better community. So this place became like a sieve, really. It's almost like a filter. And that process has been going on. And I've seen that in my lifetime. And nowadays, there are very few of the Greek and Armenian uh, families living around us. Um, but we are now seeing more or more immigrants from Sudan, from Ethiopia, from Ghana, from Kenya. Um, of course, my, my, my guards, my visitor uh, experience people, my docents, are always saying, well, all of these people speak English beautifully or French. You know, isn't this amazing? I said, well, that's their, that's their language. They've been colonized. <laughs> that's why. But it's, it's a bit of a surprise that these people actually do take the opportunity of coming into our building. And I've done a survey. I've visited about 180 families within our community ever since the construction started. I've written letters to all of them, to their names. I've given them my cell phone number. I've given them my personal email to make sure that they would be able to find someone, a counterpart, to whom they could complain about the noise, about the dust, about whatever they had to complain. And that made sure that the community realized that we were coming here not to exploit them, but to serve them to bring them something that might seem strange at the very outset, but something that would really change their lives for the better. Now, I will conclude by saying many of the members of the neighborhood have written to me or said to me that we made them aware of the fact that they could be treated as human beings. And I think that is the best award that I could have hoped for, for the foundation, for the Koch family, for Arta, for myself. They've embraced us so energetically. They know that we don't treat them differently from anybody else. 
they, they've always felt left out. They've always felt deprived. And I think even the language that was used in communication with them made them realize that we weren't sort of speaking down to them. We were actually looking up to them because I feel that we had so much to learn from that community. I, I love the spirit of that. And I, um, I, I'm going to give Kirsty, Kirsten the almost impossible task of following that. But, but I do think I wanted to say the, what, you know, for me, what, what makes this, you know, I come from an urban regeneration background, uh, working a lot in kind of inner city areas that are quite close to the center, but they could have been thousands of miles away in terms of the spirit and yeah. the cultural differences and the way that they were looked at. And the cultural institutions often acted as the only anchor uh, in these areas and the only place of interchange and exchange and meeting and they they helped actually uh, make people part of a new community and i think you're doing the same there and i love what you're doing in terms of your your vision for it and your outreach to the community and not many people i have to say melly will have given 180 families in their area's telephone number you know this so, so, so <laughs> I think this is a, a fantastic achievement but uh, kirsten uh for people listening out there and who themselves will be saying well what can i learn from this experience what do you think you've learned for thinking about cultural institutions where and where you would take it next as it were well i think the first one um point is you said that we need to find more clients just like um Koch foundation and Melly. Yeah. i keep on um teasing Melly because he's always got many many careers after his current seven that he's already done but we went right out there and did look for that in that we've um, been appointed yet again by the Koch Foundation to do their Tadback Cannon Museum, which is an absolute delight and a continuation of you know, what has been a really, really meaningful um, you know, client-architect um, relationship. In terms of what I've learned, um, I think, you know, Melly said it earlier, it's of, um, take risks and don't be afraid and don't be confined to the constraints and the confines of what is seen as a sort of traditional a cultural institution needs to do this or it needs to do that um you know we're all you know obviously through the pandemic you know cultural institutions were particularly hard hit and i think that as we come out and you know i think they're all looking to sort of recalibrate their purpose and find new ways of reaching people. And I recently did a, a presentation on this building and my summary was, I think that a lot of what lots of institutions are looking to do post pandemic were already in place for this building and were already seeded. And I think are being built on, you know, the first of those, you know, you've mentioned it there, it's about creating a really democratic space for all, is about engaging the communities and creating spaces that are much more representative of a diverse population and do that through really inclusive design exhibitions and artworks. I mean, I think, you know, museums can contribute so positively towards community resilience, well-being, and comfort and they provide so, such comfort and color to people's lives but you know community isn't just a marketing handle you know it needs to really connect all year round in really meaningful ways and you know this idea that you know as i was saying before is our 
art art was always much more than a gallery and i think cultural institutions need to be less restricted to their narrow confines of you know, of, of what they are and open and expand and ex ex expand right into the in, into the city and finally as well they need to be related to their place and connected you know both culturally materially and sort of metaphorically and you know i think that is in the way that um the institution communicates with its immediate community and with its international community and actually pays attention to both you know for so off for such a long time and i think this has been a real calibration um, um post-covid is or, or through COVID, is that there was always this focus on the international tourist, the international visit. Whereas I think um, a lot of institutions have realized the value of their local community and how that is a reciprocal relationship. And then I think as well, in terms of the, the buildings and the physical manifestation of that, I, I think it's really important that they do make reference to the city and are part of that in the, in the way that you know they create spaces but also um you know aesthetically i think um they connect to the sort of historical narrative of the city you know in a way that doesn't sort of revert to pastiche so i'm going to end there i i myself found that an incredibly inspirational discussion uh and i I, I thought I'd given you a difficult gig there to end there, Kirsten, but you did a brilliant job in almost reaching almost reaching the level of, of Melly's poetic uh, contribution, but but not quite obviously because our our, our esteemed guest uh, deserves huge credit for this com this conversation, but also Melly and your sponsor for what is a a great building, and more than that, I think it embodies a spirit of 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 all the things that we are looking to see going forward i think which is the, the connectedness the bridge that it is the breaking down of of barriers and i i feel driven to the heights of even mentioning uh the great christopher wren if you go to uh you know st paul's cathedral you will see to him it says you know if you seek my legacy look around you yes. and i I'm, I'm i'm rather hoping that we will say the same about this particular building afterwards uh and but more than that that it'll become uh, a kind of impetus for people to think that this is the kind of cultural institution and engagement we need to do going forward in the in a kind of city of the future so may i thank you both for your time today with the rain behind me hitting the ceiling in my uh, office in, in sydney but still uh, thanking you both for your great contributions today in lovely you've been listening to the second series of the grimshaw podcast culture and the city with your host tim williams Join us again for other episodes in this series from your favourite podcast provider.